Hello, welcome back to Waking Cosmos, a philosophy podcast focusing on the mystery of consciousness and its place in reality. Adrian here, good to be back with you. Today I'm joined by the neuroscientist Donald Hoffman. Many of you have been requesting Donald come on the podcast. For those of you who don't know, Donald Hoffman has gained a lot of attention for his theory in which reality is a network of interacting conscious agents. It's a precise mathematical theory with all kinds of very interesting implications. And today we cover a lot of ground relating to his theory and this larger possibility that consciousness is fundamental to reality. We talk about idealism and panpsychism and how they relate to his way of thinking. We talk about why evolution hid the truth of reality from us. We also talk about the possibility of an infinite mind which contains all other minds, which is something that Donald's theory allows for. We also talk about how what Donald calls conscious realism leaves the door open to life after death. Those of you who find these subjects interesting are going to enjoy this episode, I hope. If you do, please take a moment to like, subscribe, give the podcast a nice rating, wherever you might be listening to it. It's very encouraging to me to know when these conversations are resonating with you, and it also stimulates the algorithm, which is very good for our visibility. If you're watching on YouTube, I'll be in the comments section. So if you want to talk about the subjects in today's episode, share your thoughts. I very much welcome that and I look forward to chatting with you there. The very last thing to say is thank you to those of you who are supporting Waking Cosmos on Patreon. I'm slowly edging towards my goal where I can afford to turn Waking Cosmos into a full-time project. So I'm really grateful to those of you who are helping me do that. I've been really touched by the support and encouragement many of you have been giving me there. If you're not, but you'd like to support us, the place to go is patreon.com slash wakingcosmos. And that'll also get you early access to these episodes. Remember, if you find Donald's ideas interesting, his book, The Case Against Reality, covers all of the subjects we talk about today. It's very good. There's an audible version of it as well. Very worth checking out. Links in the description. All right, without further delay, here is my conversation with Donald Hoffman. Hi, Donald. Good to be talking with you. How are you? Very good, Adrian. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm great. Yeah, thank you for agreeing to this conversation. I've been really looking forward to it. So you've become known for your, your theory in which the, the fabric of reality itself is comprised fundamentally of interactions in consciousness. It's a very interesting theory, a mathematical theory, and I'm very much looking forward to exploring it with you. Um, but before we get into your ideas about the nature of reality, I think the natural way to get there is through your views on perception and uh, your argument that what we perceive as reality through our human perceptions is in fact much, much further from the truth of what's really out there than even evolutionary psychologists have recognized. So, Donald, clearly our minds evolved over millions of years to aid in our survival. So why would our minds conceal reality from us? Right. So it's very natural for us to think that 
seeing reality as it is would make us more fit. No one thinks that we see all of reality, but it seems natural to think that evolution would shape our senses to report those aspects of objective reality that were essential for our survival. And so if I see an apple, the shape of the apple, the color of the apple, the position of the apple, we think we're seeing true properties of an apple that would exist and have those properties even if there were no creatures to observe it, no perceivers that could see it. Uh, We think the same thing about the moon. We see a moon, we see its shape, we see that it's far away. Presumably, we think uh, we're seeing a moon that would exist even if there were no life on Earth to observe it. And the argument that normally we would like to give for that is to say, look, those of our ancestors that saw reality more accurately had a competitive advantage in the essential functions of life, feeding, fighting, fleeing, and mating. And therefore, they were more likely to pass on the genes that coded for those more accurate perceptions. And so after thousands of generations of that kind of process, we can be quite confident that we're the offspring of those who in each generation saw more accurately. And so we see, in the normal case, reality as it is, or at least those aspects of reality that we need to see. And that argument seems quite plausible, and and in fact, many of my colleagues will make that informally. But it turns out that we don't need to be satisfied with informal arguments. Evolution by natural selection is now a mathematically precise theory. We have evolutionary game theory. John Maynard Smith, a very famous British mathematician, was the genius who turned evolution by natural selection into a mathematically precise uh, science. And so we can use the tools of evolutionary game theory to ask a precise question. Does natural selection favor perceptual strategies um, that see the truth, at least some aspect of the truth, and have those kinds of strategies compete against strategies that see none of the truth and are just tuned to um, what are called the fitness payoffs in evolution. And the fitness payoffs um, are like the points in a video game. If you're playing a video game and you want to get to the next level, you have to focus on collecting points as quickly as you can and as intelligently as you can. And if you get enough points, then you go to the next level. And in evolution by natural selection, you can think of it as like a game, but and you're collecting points. Fitness payoffs are the points. But if you collect enough, you, you don't go to the next generation. Your genes in your offspring go to the next generation. And so these fitness payoffs are what the game of life is all about, collecting these fitness payoffs. Like if you're a hungry lion, uh, a steak could give you lots of fitness payoffs, but that same lion, if it's interested in mating, well, that steak gives it no payoffs at all for mating. And so payoffs are going to depend on the organism, uh, what it's trying to do, eating versus mating, and, and so forth. And so what we were able to do is to show in evolutionary, we did evolutionary game simulations, and then we used the mathematics of evolution to prove a theorem. And the simulations and the theorem both agree. The bottom line is this. Organisms that see reality as it is are never more fit than organisms of equal complexity that see none of reality and are just tuned to the fitness payoffs. In other words, seeing the truth will drive you extinct. So that's just a theorem of evolution by natural selection. There's no payoff in terms of reproductive payoff for seeing the truth. The payoff is all for ignoring the truth, uh, not seeing any of the truth, and just being 
tuned, having your senses tuned to the fitness payoffs. So what evolution is basically telling us is that what we're seeing is more like a interface. Evolution has shaped us with an interface, like the desktop interface on your computer. You don't see the diodes and resistors and circuits and software and magnetic fields in your computer. Uh, if you had to deal with all that, you couldn't write emails and edit files and, and you know edit your photographs. Um, it would be too complicated. Seeing that quote-unquote truth would get in the way. So we have very simplified user interfaces with simple, colorful icons that let us do what we need to do. And those icons and that interface is there explicitly to hide the truth. Because if you had to deal with the truth, it would be too complicated. So we have simple eye candy that lets us do what we need to do. And that's what evolution has done for us. So to put it flatly, space and time and physical objects are not objective reality. They're a simplified user interface. Space-time is our three-dimensional desktop, and you know, tables and chairs and apples and the moon are simply three-dimensional icons in our desktop. They're there not to show us the truth, but to hide the truth and simply to guide adaptive action. And that's the main point of evolution, is giving us the symbols we need so that we can act in the way we need to act to stay alive and reproduce. So it turns out that the best way to do that is not to see the truth, but to have a, a user interface that hides the truth. Right. So I think in many respects, science has taught us to distrust our perceptions and to try and see beyond them. And, you know, anyone with a, a science education knows that colors don't exist in the world. They're created in our perception and in the same way that smells are not floating through the air and Beyond that, we, we know that we, what we perceive as a physical world is actually comprised of waves and, and particles that are more or less empty and actually don't follow our common sense rules as objects. So, at least for modern scientists, the fact that we didn't evolve to see reality as it is, is kind of a, a well-accepted fact. So, what is really the, the new insight that you see this interface theory of perception bringing to our understanding? Well, so in the case of evolution, for example, what's new here, we assume typically that space and time are fundamental reality, and certain objects in space and time, such as DNA or neurons in our brains, are, exist and um, have their properties even if no one perceives them. I'm saying that evolution by natural selection contradicts those assumptions. Space-time is not fundamental. It's not the framework, um, you know, the stage on which the drama of life plays out. Space and time are simply a data structure that we create. Um, so we're not in space and time. We're the authors of space and time. And <clears throat> neurons don't exist when they're not perceived. So strictly speaking, this, this point of view leads to the radical statement that Brains only exist when they're perceived. They're only symbols that we create when we look inside skulls, um, and they don't exist otherwise. So that, strictly speaking, neurons cause none of our behaviors and none of our conscious experiences. So that's where this gets to be a little bit radical. And it does line up, as you say, with much of what we're learning in science. Many physicists now are saying that general relativity and quantum field theory together entail that space-time is doomed. And part of the reason is that it, it ceases to even have any functional meaning when you get to a certain small size. When you get down to 
10 to the minus 33 centimeters, uh, it ceases to even have any functional meaning. There is no way in principle that anything about space could be measured at uh, you know, sizes smaller than, than 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. So for reasons like that, physicists are saying, yeah, space-time, we thought it was the fundamental reality. Physics for centuries has been about what happens inside space and time. But now they're realizing that space-time itself is just an emergent property, an emergent entity. There's something deeper. They don't yet know what the deeper thing is. Um, so it's sort of an exciting time in physics to ask what is the deeper reality behind space-time. So that's the sense in which this is sort of novel. When we say that, it's not just like maybe we don't see colors correctly or you know wave functions correctly, but that space-time itself is just our data structure and that neurons don't exist and don't cause any of our behaviors. Neurons only exist when we look inside skulls. That's when people begin to think this is a little bit novel and maybe a little bit crazy. Right, so in your view, when we're trying to understand space and time as these external phenomena that we're seeing as emerging out of a deeper level of reality, what you're saying is that we're actually overlooking that these are, are constructs that we are creating in our interface. So, yeah, I think the point at which it, it starts to become clearer, the radical nature of what you're proposing is that you're saying that reality is as different to the way we perceive it as the icon on the desktop is to the transistors and codes inside the computer. It's as different as that. But of course, you don't stop here and you've gone on to consider what that hidden reality might actually be. And you've proposed a, a model where consciousness itself is fundamental to reality. Donald, before we go into the details of your view on this, what is it about consciousness in particular that for you makes it a plausible candidate for being fundamental to reality? Right. So... One of the biggest unsolved problems in science today is what's called the hard problem of consciousness. This, is, this was recognized by Leibniz 300 years ago um, by Thomas Huxley in 1860s. <clears throat> and it's still one of the biggest unsolved problems in science today. And the problem is this. We have various kinds of conscious experiences, like simple things, like tasting chocolate having a headache, smelling garlic, feeling the touch of, you know, velvet or something like that. We have these conscious experiences on the one hand, and we have lots of evidence of neural activity in the brain um, when we measure brain activity that's correlated with specific conscious experiences. So, for example, my experience of color um, is highly correlated with activity in area of visual area V4 of the brain. It's in the, um, the ventral temporal lobe. And if you take a magnet, a transcranial magnetic stimulation device, and use that to, you can just touch it to your skull next to area V4 of cortex and inhibit V4, then you will lose all color experience in the right part of your visual world. Everything to the right of where you're looking will look like a black and white television screen picture. It's just all shades of gray. You can see the shapes and the objects and the motions just fine, but you don't see any color. Then you turn the magnet off and the color comes back into your, your visual world. And if you 
excite V4, then you'll get you know psychedelic colors of, you know in the opposite visual field. So left V4 excitation leads to right hemi right hemifield psychedelic colors. So we have hundreds of correlations like this between brain activity and conscious experiences, but we don't have remarkably any scientific theory that can, with mathematical precision, say exactly how neural activity might cause specific conscious experiences, like specific green color that you might see, green 55. What brain activity uh, is responsible for creating brain, uh, you know, color green 55? Why does it, uh, why does that brain activity cause that color experience? And why is it the case that it could not possibly have caused, you know, the taste of chocolate instead, or the smell of garlic? We have no theory that can explain even one specific conscious experience. There are some who will say our belief in conscious experiences is an illusion. We have the illusion that we're having conscious experiences like green 55 or the smell of garlic or something like that. And that's fine. Then the scientific question is to give a mathematically precise theory that explains why we have that specific illusion. What brain activity or what kind of program running in a computer must be the illusion of green 55 and could not be the illusion of the smell of chocolate. And again, there's nothing on the table. There's not any scientific theory that can explain either uh, the conscious experience, the one particular conscious experience, or one particular illusion of conscious experience, if you think they're illusions. So it's that that, in fact, first got me wondering what assumption we're making that's deeply false, but that we deeply believe. And that's when I went after this evolution um, argument. I, I began to study evolution more carefully and realized it was saying that our assumption that space and time and physical objects like neurons and computers exist even when they're not perceived, that assumption is deeply false. And so that might be explaining why our, you know, our attempts to start with neural activity or computer programs and boot up conscious experiences or the illusion of conscious experiences, that whole project is doomed to failure because we've made a false assumption at the very start. Neurons don't exist and they don't have causal powers. Um, when they're not perceived. Same thing with, with computers. Computers are symbols that we create when we look. But there is some, presumably, some objective reality, something that would exist even if I didn't perceive it. And so what I'm trying to do then is, you know, of course, I don't know what the objective reality is, right? If it's not space and time, it's not physical objects, uh, it's anyone's guess what objective reality might be. So as a scientist, what I, all I can do is say, let me make a proposal. I'm going to propose that the objective reality behind space and time is a vast social network of interacting conscious agents, where I have a mathematically precise proposal for what I mean by conscious agents. So I've published a paper that gives a mathematical definition of a conscious agent. And then to see if that theory might be plausible, might be worth looking at, what I have to do is try to solve this hard problem of consciousness in the opposite direction. I'll start with this mathematical theory of conscious agents, this vast social network and its dynamics, and see if I can't, from that, with mathematical precision, boot up space-time and physical objects and look and see if I can show that the dynamics of consciousness looks like evolution by natural selection, it looks like quantum field theory and general relativity when we project the dynamics of consciousness 
into this space-time user interface. So, so the big picture is there's this the reality is this vast social network. Think like the Twitterverse. You know, there's tens of millions of Twitter users, literally billions of tweets, scores of items that are trending. No Twitter user could ever fully engage with all the billion tweets and millions of users. So if we want to understand the Twitterverse, you know, to understand what's happening in England versus what's happening in New York or, or California, what we would need to do is have some kind of visualization tool, so like maybe a virtual reality visualization tool that, that ignores most of the data of the Twitterverse because it's just too complicated and just takes the, 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 the key aspects of it that we're interested in and transforms it into like colored icons in moving in three-dimensional, a three-dimensional virtual reality that we've, that we've constructed that lets us just understand what's trending in New York versus what's happening in, 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 in London and so forth. So that would, that would be a visualization tool that we use. And so what I'm saying is the universe itself, the fundamental reality, is a vast social network of conscious agents, and certain conscious agents, namely humans, for example, uh, use space-time and physical objects as our visualization tool. They're not the fundamental reality. Space-time and objects are not a fundamental reality. They're just a visualization tool. And our species, if this is correct, has just made a very rookie mistake of thinking that our visualization tool was the final reality. Space and time are just a visualization tool that our species uses to visualize this vast social network of interacting conscious agents in a simplified format. And so we've made the rookie mistake of thinking that our visualization tool was the final reality. So from this point of view, science so far has only been a study of our interface, of our visualization tool. But the tools of science, I believe, are extremely powerful, and they're not limited to merely exploring our visualization tool. We can use the tools of proposing mathematically precise theories, making very precise predictions that can be measured, and, and then going and doing experiments to test those predictions. We can do that with theories of objective reality that are beyond space and time. There's no reason why science is restricted to space-time theories. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm And some colleagues of mine, um, very gifted mathematicians I'm working with and physicists, we have this mathematical model of conscious agents, and we're using it to make mathematically precise predictions uh, that we could then test back in our space-time interface. So that's what we have to do, right? All of our experiments have to be done in space and time. So what we have to do is show how this network of conscious agents projects into space-time as a user interface, and then we can make predictions that are testable. So that's what we're up to. You raised the hard problem of consciousness. And so one thing that you pointed out in your book is that most, if not all, current theories of consciousness have at some stage essentially a magic trick occurring. Some process or another is identified and this is where consciousness miraculously appears. Like, as you said, a rabbit coming out of a hat. And so the argument is that they're not actually explaining consciousness. The real question is, how can unconscious matter possibly give rise to a conscious point of view? But you, on the other hand, are starting with consciousness. So the magic then, I suppose, becomes 
well, how do you get a world when you're starting with just consciousness? So, Donald, how do you see reality being constructed entirely out of consciousness? Right. So, every scientific theory starts with certain assumptions. No scientific theory can explain everything. So, there is no theory of everything in the sense that every scientific theory will say, please grant me these few assumptions, and if you grant me those assumptions, then I can explain all this other stuff. So maybe grant me space and time and microphysical particles, and then I can explain chemistry and biology and, and hopefully consciousness. Um, that strategy has worked for, uh, you know, the, the physicalist strategy of saying, grant me space, time, and microphysical particles as the foundational reality, and I can explain everything else. That has worked spectacularly for hundreds of years for, for most of the problems in science that we're interested in. So, you know, it's, it's, it's given us great insights in science and it's also given us wonderful technology. But it has fundamentally failed to give us any insight into uh, a scientific theory of how consciousness could, have, could emerge from the you know, activity of uh, unconscious microphysical particles in space-time. So it's failed spectacularly there. And usually we look at the failures of a scientific theory as the insights that we need to go to the next level, to find the next deeper theory. Hopefully a, a theory that explains why the earlier theories had certain failures, but, but agree with the earlier theories where they had explanations. So it's not like we just overthrow the, the previous theories, but we get new, deeper theories that, that can explain the same things the earlier theories did, but then explain more. So the way that it will work in terms of a theory of consciousness, the idea will be that, the assumption I'll be making there is that conscious agents do have conscious experiences. So instead of starting with um, the assumption that space-time and particles are fundamental, I will start with the assumption that conscious experiences, the experience of colors and temperatures and smells, and uh, experiences such as space. So thinking of space not as an objective reality, but thinking of space as a form of conscious experience. So the idea will, will then be to show how um, conscious agents interacting, so in networks of conscious agents, they can interact to construct complex user interfaces like space-time with physical objects in it. And the way I'm doing it, for those who are more mathematically inclined, it, there's a, a Markovian dynamics of conscious agents on, on a network. So it's, it's a multigraph theory of, of agents, and um, the interactions um, are Markovian. It's provably computationally universal, so the networks of conscious agents can provably construct anything that, for example, neural networks could construct or any universal computer could construct. So there's no issue about whether networks of conscious agents could themselves have the, in some sense, the compute power to construct models of learning, memory, problem-solving, intelligence, the self, and, and so forth, and also to construct user interfaces. The real test will be, can we propose a specific principal dynamics of consciousness and show that that principal dynamics, when we project it into uh, a specific space-time interface, gives us back what looks like evolution by natural selection in space-time and also general relativity and quantum field theory um, in space-time. So that will be the, the, the um, task for us. If we can't do that, we're wrong. And, and what we're really going to be doing is 
if we can't come up with a plausible dynamics on our own, what, we'll, what we may have to do is to try to reverse engineer, take evolution by natural selection and pull it backwards from space-time, pull it backwards into this network of conscious agents and ask what kind of dynamics does it look like in this network of conscious agents. And then from that, try to get some clue as to what the, uh, the network of conscious agents is up to and why. And then use that to then go back and um, build models of you know, how space-time and, and quantum dynamics emerge. So that's, that's what we're up to. The idea will be that we have to make mathematically precise predictions about what happens in space-time, and they better agree where, where our predictions are on the same turf as, say, quantum field theory and evolution by natural selection, our predictions better agree with what evolution by natural selection and quantum field theory predict, or we're wrong. So this will actually, this is not just a hand wave. This is going to be um, you know, very, very testable. Right. So in effect, you're saying, much like physicists say, give us particle physics and these basic dynamics and we'll give you the universe, evolution and everything else. You're saying, grant me consciousness and I'm going to attempt to give you the universe through these mathematics of conscious agents and you have consciousness as your fundamental assumption. And of course, in science, you have to start with with something. Um, I guess for me, I'm always curious to know with views like this, is there an intuitive reason why we should expect something like consciousness or awareness to be fundamental? Are there ways that you see in which consciousness actually makes more sense as a basis of reality? Right. Well, there I think we have to rely somewhat on our intuitions. I'm not sure, by the way, that I'm right, right? I mean, that's part of the scientific approach is to say, look, here's a theory. I'm not sure the theory is correct. I'm not sure I believe my theory. Let's try to make it absolutely mathematically precise, see what it predicts and go test those predictions and, and then find out, uh, you know, maybe the theory is wrong. And, and so it's, it's roughly in that spirit that I'm proposing this. I don't think it's a slam dunk that, that consciousness is fundamental. I think that it's the failure of physicalist theories to explain conscious experiences or to explain the specific illusions of conscious experiences, if you think it's an illusion. It's the failure of physicalist theories to explain that in the appearance that that failure is principled. It's not like it's because we haven't had bright people looking at it. We've had Nobel Prize winners working on this problem for a long time now. And we don't have anything remotely plausible on the table. It doesn't seem to me like consciousness is an illusion. I mean, some of my colleagues and philosophers like Dan Dennett and Keith Frankish and, and some others think, that, no, consciousness is just an illusion. Perhaps they're right, but still we would need a scientific theory um, that explains the illusion, and we failed to do that. So my attitude is is more, I'm not claiming I'm right. I'm just saying let's start with a theory in which we take consciousness seriously. We take headaches and simple things like smells of you know cheese and so forth as, as part of the fundamental furniture of the universe. Make that idea precise. And if that theory can actually show how to boot up space and time and all of current modern science, including quantum field theory and evolution, 
that doesn't even then prove the theory is correct. It doesn't prove that consciousness is fundamental, but it does make it far more plausible, and it makes it at least what we would have is a explanatory framework that has broader explanatory power than physicalism has. So my own attitude is that we should be very, very careful about claiming we know the truth. I don't claim to know the truth. It just seems like physicalism is now, with all of its spectacular successes, it has reached a fundamental limit, and we should take that limit and note it very, very seriously. And it looks to me like a theory in which consciousness is fundamental doesn't have that limit. It seems that it's going to be a much easier task to start with consciousness and boot up what looks like unconscious matter and space-time. The other direction seems very, very difficult to start with unconscious matter and space-time and to boot up consciousness or the specific illusions of consciousness. No one's been able to do that. So, so I guess my attitude is partly pragmatic. Physicalism has hit a hard wall. We've been stuck on the same problem for, for centuries. It's time to try a different approach. This new approach in which consciousness is fundamental seems to be able to make headway where physicalism doesn't. Now, if the theory that consciousness is fundamental then eventually re- runs into some brick wall, then I would be very eager to then come up with a deeper framework. I have no idea what that would be, but I think that's more in the spirit of the scientific attitude. of Not to be dogmatic, it's just to say, you know, what are the strengths of, of these theories? What are the weaknesses? And, you know, maybe we need to move on to a deeper theory. What you're proposing is, in a way, a form of idealism, which is, in many respects, a very ancient view, especially in Eastern traditions, but also some Western philosophers as well have defended forms of idealism. And so idealism, just very briefly to summarize, captures views where consciousness is simply everything. Everything is inside consciousness in some sense. And so how do you see your theory in relation to idealism and perhaps going beyond previous versions that have existed before? Right. I call my view conscious realism instead of idealism. And I use the word realism on purpose. I'm proposing that consciousness is the fundamental nature of reality, that there is an objective reality and it is consciousness, and that we can, as scientists, build mathematical models of that objective reality. Now, idealism shares a lot in spirit with what I'm saying. Idealists like uh, Berkeley and Kant and Hegel and so forth are would say that the physical world is not the final reality or the fundamental reality, that, that there's something beyond the world of, of um, appearances of space and time. So Kant talked about the phenomenal realm of space and time, um, and then a noumenal realm, um, which goes beyond space and time. Now, he said that we couldn't actually say anything about the noumenal realm. In particular, we couldn't do science of the noumenal realm. Kant might be right. But I'm disagreeing with him. Uh, I'm saying w- the noumenal realm is this vast social network of conscious agents. We can write down a mathematical model of those conscious agents and make predictions back in space and time that we can go test. Now, I may be wrong. Kant might be right. Maybe it's, in, in fact, not possible for us to ever truly do science of the noumenal realm. 
But um, as a scientist, I can't go there. At least I'm not going to go there now. It's, it's bad for a scientist to say you can't do it. We need to give it the good old college try and see how far we can go. Now, in many cases, idealism historically has had some anti-science inclinations. It's, it's been a reaction against the advances of a physicalist science. And that was part of, in my view, part of Barclay's motivation was to you know, defend a certain faith against the advances of a Newtonian mechanics that seemed to perhaps cut against that faith. From my point of view, what I want is an idealism, what I call a conscious realism, that's, that has no anti-science inclinations in it whatsoever. It's saying we can use the method of science, mathematically precise theories, testable hypotheses, and then revising our theories in light of the evidence of the experiments we do. So it's absolutely not an anti-science um, proposal, and it's not an anti-realist proposal. I'm proposing there is an objective reality, we can do science of it, and that reality is um, a network of conscious agents. So, so there's something different in flavor from previous idealisms. Many idealisms are associated with some kind of anti-realism or a claim that there are certain limits to what science can do or are reactionary against the march of Newtonian physics and so forth. And, and so mine has none of that. In fact, in terms of Newtonian physics, I better get back Newtonian physics as a special projection of this dynamics of conscious agents, or I'm wrong. So I'm not trying to overthrow Newtonian physics. I'm saying it's a special case of a much deeper dynamics. So, so that's sort of my view of how conscious realism um, is related to classical idealism. I don't know that idealism is necessarily associated with being anti-science. You know, when I think of uh, Schelling and Kant and Goethe to some extent, I don't necessarily think that they were anti-science and I don't think they would have necessarily have wanted to throw out Newtonian physics, but I think that they would have wanted to say that the underlying nature of reality is more mind-like. Yeah, I would say I absolutely agree with you. It's it's certainly um, not the case that all um, proponents of idealism were were, were you know were anti-realist or anti-science by no means. However, I've noticed among my my colleagues um, when if if I use the term idealism, they would assume that it was sort of an anti-science or anti-realist point of view, which is why I I then decided not to use the term idealism because it has. Too many, I mean, there's too many things that get packed under the name idealism, so I decided to use conscious realism. So there are clearly significant benefits of having a very mathematically precise definition of a, of a conscious agent. Uh, one issue that I think may come up for some people is, at the end of the day, consciousness itself is essentially a qualitative phenomenon. And so while mathematics describes things very well in a quantitative way and, and from a third-person perspective. But how do you see a mathematical theory actually shedding light on these interior qualities of experience? You know, why, for example, redness has the distinct quality that it does, but also how does that quality of redness exist in a precise relation to, say, the taste of cinnamon or the smell of cut grass. Do you see your theory eventually shedding light on both these qualities of experience, but also how they might intelligibly relate to each other? Yes, there is um, a field called psychophysics that was established by a, 
a, a German scientist named Fechner around 1860. And since then, there's been a a lot of research that's been done in psychophysics where we do mathematically precise modeling of conscious experiences and we do psychophysical experiments. Um, and it turns out that wherever we look, conscious experiences are not amorphous. They are highly structured. That's independent of my work on conscious realism. This is just the field of psychophysics. They've discovered that conscious experiences are highly structured and that we can write down, in many cases, mathematical equations and mathematical structures that capture relationships among conscious experiences and that predict conscious experiences. And in fact, it's in part the success of this ability to write down mathematical models of conscious experiences and the relationships that's, that's the foundation of virtual reality. How is it that we can put a headset on you and immerse you in any world we want to immerse you. Some world you've never seen before with objects and colors and shapes and motions that you've perhaps never seen before. The reason we can do that and we can know exactly what we're gonna make you see is because we have uh, now a mathematics of conscious experiences that's highly precise. And so that's work that's been going on for, you know, since 1860. And the insights that we've gotten from that are among the insights that go into the success of modern virtual reality. So already we're making great strides on understanding the mathematical relationships among um, various conscious experiences. And, and I think that the work that I'm doing will just be a continuation of that trend. You distanced yourself from, from idealism. In your book, you also distinguish your view from that of what is called panpsychism, which some of our listeners will be familiar with as well. And it's another view with several different variants, but they all say effectively that consciousness is intrinsic to reality in some way. And in some cases, I think in a very similar way to you. Um, so I wonder why you don't consider your theory to be a species of panpsychism either. Right, right. So panpsychism is a label that's applied to some very different kinds of views. So it's, it's unfortunate, again, that the, the name itself um, doesn't just point to one specific precise idea. So one brand of idea that's called panpsychism is the idea that there are physical particles like electrons and protons and quarks and so forth. <clears throat> they are real physical particles. And in addition to their physical properties like position, momentum, and spin, and charge, and so forth, they also have say, a unit of consciousness. So an electron has a unit of consciousness and a proton has a unit of consciousness. There's something it's like to be an electron. There's something it's like to be a proton. It may be very simple, who knows? It's probably very different from what it's like to be a human being. And if that's what we mean by panpsychism, so there are physical things like electrons and protons that have genuine physical properties, but they also have genuine non-physical properties, namely these conscious experiences, then that's a form of dualism. And most scientists don't like dualism. We want to avoid dualism. And the theory that I'm proposing of conscious realism is not dualistic. It's a monist theory. It's saying consciousness is fundamental, and the only kind of stuff there is is consciousness. Space, time, and matter are simply forms of conscious experiences 
They're not something independent of consciousness. The form of panpsychism that I just described would be a form of dualism. Now, I know that there are some who use the word panpsychism to refer to a non-dualist framework, and they'll use a language in which they still talk about particles with consciousness as well, but they would like to say in some sense that there's only consciousness. And if, if they go that direction, it's closer to what I'm trying to say. I just think that the idea of even talking about particles in the same sentence of what you're saying is fundamental in terms of consciousness just begs people to think about dualism. And, and it's, it just seems the wrong language. And, and by the way, panpsychism has never been turned into a precise mathematical theory. There's no definition of what the panpsychist means by consciousness. So, and that's another interesting thing. I mean, idealism has never been given a mathematical theory until now. My, my theory of conscious realism is, is, so far as I know, the first uh, mathematically precise theory of, of consciousness that, that is a monist theory and doesn't try to just view consciousness as, say, emerging from some functional properties, integrated information or quantum coherence of microtubule collapses or something like that, in which consciousness by itself and not as a result of being property of some functional you know, physical system, consciousness itself is fundamental. This is the first time that I know of that there's a mathematically precise theory of consciousness in that way. And panpsychism has not yet had a proponent that's put something mathematical on the table. I would love for them to do it. And that certainly is what your theory has going for it. It's uh, much more potentially scientifically even falsifiable, the fact that it has this very precise mathematical definition. And yeah, you're certainly correct as well that there are versions of, of panpsychism which are dualistic. So they end up with these two fundamental substances of mind and matter and then a real problem of how they could ever possibly interact um but actually the version of panpsychism that i see being defended almost in all cases these days is more of a dual aspect monism and so it's it's a monism because it's it's only one fundamental thing but rather than having these two distinct substances mind and matter are seen as implying each other sort of in an analogous way to exteriors and interiors they are in necessity of each other they imply each other some somehow and as far as i can tell right. your your theory kind of begins with the same intuition of of panpsychism as well that we simply don't see the intrinsic nature of reality through our observations except for perhaps in our consciousness, which we experience directly. And so this makes it a candidate for being this fundamental ground of reality. And as far as I can tell, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but you do seem to have similar ontological assumptions as panpsychism for similar reasons. And But you're plugging into that this um, ingenious mathematical interface idea in which reality is even further obscured by our interface and so we have to build out from there so it, it seems to me and like i say please correct me if i'm wrong but that your theory is effectively plugging into panpsychist intuitions and then building out from there in a very ingenious and interesting way right so yeah the the kind of 
panpsychism you're describing there is is for example the kind that, that I think is close to what Galen Strassen is is defending right and it, I think it's a very interesting point of view I would say the difference between that view and mine is that the the theory of conscious agents allows for the existence of conscious agents in which they have no interface at all there are there are simple agents that literally have conscious experiences and Nothing like space-time, nothing like particles at all. Just merely conscious experiences without that format. So, so, so I think that certain conscious agents may answer to the kind of thing that panpsychists like Galen Strassen are talking about. But, but my theory allows that there is a, more, a wider variety of conscious agents in which there is nothing like a space-time. There is nothing like microphysical particles at all. Um, and... And nothing that would answer to the, our ideas about a physicalist. Um, you know, so, a dual, so the dual aspect monism, I'm claiming that there could be conscious agents for which the, like, what we call the physical side of that dual aspect monism just isn't there. Um, but there are, I think there are cases where it could be there. So I think that's, that is one, one big difference. And of course, the other difference is just the mathematical precision. But I, I would say I have a lot more in common with... with um, panpsychists like Galen Strassen that I that I do with physicalists absolutely fair enough and yeah I don't know that they uh, a panpsychist of that species variety is sort of necessarily compelled to say that a, a particle for example is is conscious but that sure and that perspective of panpsychism presumably includes all of the scientific knowledge, including you know not things like non-locality and all of these various ways in which reality is not itself subject to our human categories. So, what is actually conscious under panpsychism of that kind? I think really depends on the theory that you then decide to apply to it. For example, your theory of conscious agents. Mm-hmm. To move on uh, slightly, but to keep panpsychism somewhat in the background, because an important part of your theory has conscious agents combining with each other to produce greater conscious agents. And of course, this is a question that panpsychists have to solve as well. How do simpler forms of consciousness or simpler minds combine together? Um, It's called the, the combination problem. And it does seem very difficult to imagine how minds could possibly combine together. But as you've pointed out, a good reason to think that it is at least possible that um, minds combine together is that it seems to be happening in us. And I'm thinking of what's been discovered through split brain patients, which you uh, talk about in your book. So maybe you could take us through how you see split brain patients helping us to understand conscious agents combining together. Right. So there have been patients with epilepsy so severe that drugs were not able to adequately control the symptoms. And so in desperate cases, uh, they've had to do a surgery in which a surgeon opens up the skull and and cuts a band of fibers called the corpus callosum, about 200 million to 225 million axons that, that join the left and the right hemispheres. They connect the two hem- It's like a Ethernet cable between the two hemispheres. And, and when you cut that band of fibers, you can set up um, experiments in which um, you give a, a word to the right hemisphere, like the word key, and you give a word to the left hemisphere, like the word ring, 
And the right hemisphere is thinking about the word key, and the left hemisphere is thinking about the word ring. They're, they're, they have separate contents of consciousness. And a whole series of experiments then explores these situations in which you can have literally two separate contents of consciousness. The left hemisphere doesn't know what's in the right hemisphere, what, what word it's thinking about. The right hemisphere doesn't know what the left hemisphere is thinking about. And in fact, it's so separate that you can actually set it up so that these patients can play 20 questions with themselves, where the left hemisphere is trying to guess a word that the right hemisphere is thinking about. And it asks yes or no questions, and the right hemisphere just says yes, no, and the left hemisphere has to guess what's in the right hemisphere's mind. So these experiments, plus other interesting experiments where you find that there seem to be different personalities. The right hemisphere in one patient wanted to be a race car driver. The left hemisphere wanted to be a draftsman. Very different likes and dislikes. So that leads to the idea that you're not just one consciousness, perhaps, but and not just one personality, but but more than one. And yet, you know, when we have our, you know, in the normal case, when we don't have our corpus callosum cut, we often will feel like we're one person with one set of ideas and experiences and so forth. And these experiments suggest that we should think about the possibility, take seriously the possibility that the left and the right hemisphere could be correlated with utterly separate personalities, separate conscious experiences, and when the corpus callosum is intact, that we could be thinking about somehow that these two personalities and these two uh, diverse conscious centers somehow give rise to a single new conscious uh, center, a new, a new person and a new conscious unified experience. And this is called the combination problem. Panpsychists, of course, face this. When they say, you know, an electron has a unit of consciousness and a proton has a unit of consciousness, well, when they combine to form a hydrogen atom, presumably the hydrogen atom then has consciousness and it's different than just that of the proton or the neutron. So how do the proton and neutron consciousnesses give rise to the hydrogen consciousness? And then all the way up to the human consciousness. Presumably, my consciousness is very, very different from all the protons and neutrons and all the atoms that make up my body, how, how does that happen? How do the elementary consciousnesses get combined to make my consciousness? And without a mathematical theory of consciousness, it's impossible to even begin to give a scientific answer to that question. So with, with the mathematical theory of conscious agents, um, I can begin to answer that question. It turns out that there are ways for example, when two conscious agents interact and you write down the mathematics of their interaction and look at it, the mathematics of their interaction also satisfies the definition of being a conscious agent. So what the theory is saying then is the dynamics of interacting conscious agents is also a conscious agent. And I expect that as I and my colleagues look at this mathematics more and more carefully, we'll find that there are many, many different ways that conscious agents can interact and combine to create new new consciousnesses. So I'm, that's one of the directions I'm really excited to go after is, and one thing we may end up doing is taking the, the current theory of conscious agents that I've published with my colleague Chetan Prakash and categorifying it. Instead of just looking at Markovian kernels as the way that conscious agents interact, look at the 
Markov category and use that as the next generation model of conscious agents and their interactions. And that will open up a wide variety of mathematical ways in which we could talk about conscious agents interacting and creating new conscious agents. We're going to find this very, very rich mathematical um, playground of understanding how consciousnesses can interact and combine. Uh, so I'm, 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 I feel like a kid in a candy store. I can't wait to do it. Right. So as you just mentioned, something that comes out of this combining of consciousness in your theory is that it permits and even alludes to the existence of much greater minds existing above us in a way, and also all the way up to potentially infinitely great minds. And I want to explore with you what these greater minds might be like, but just in order to understand this sort of sequence of minds coming together, is it your view that you know, our two minds interacting now are creating a new conscious agent? And if not, what do you think is the, the necessary level of interaction where a new mind or a new conscious agent becomes instantiated? I think that it's a plausible hypothesis that the two consciousnesses of the two hemispheres in normal human beings with no corpus callosum damage are coordinating together to form a single consciousness and a single unified person. That doesn't destroy the separate consciousnesses of the two hemispheres independently and their, their two personalities. That's the model that I'm working on right now is, is a model in which the agents combine, they create a new agent, but the lower level agents aren't destroyed in the process. They also retain their own identity, but they're influenced by the new entity that they're creating, the new conscious agent that, that they're creating. And so the mathematics of that is going to be fascinating to explore. There's some interesting problems in, in terms of, for example, the privacy of qualia. If you have a really good friend and you've known that friend for, for decades and you can empathize with them, you, you can guess what they're thinking and feeling, no matter how well you know that person, you can't actually go inside their head and experience what they're experiencing. There seems to be this fundamental privacy of, of qualia. But in the case of the two hemispheres, right, you can actually show that when the corpus callosum is cut, there also seems to be these qualia, these experiences that are separate. With the corpus callosum intact, we seem to have a situation where there is a breaching of that privacy and, and that there are new qualia for a higher level agent. And so that's going to be part of the fun of this theory of consciousness to really understand what what's going on here with what we call the privacy of qualia under what conditions can that be breached and you have a direct experience of the experiences of other conscious agents so that's part of the interesting part of the theory and the theory says yes this goes on ad infinitum you can have very simple conscious agents that have maybe only one or two conscious experiences they can combine to create Agents with four experiences and eight and so forth. And the mathematics allows that you could have this go on to infinity so that there are conscious agents with an infinite range of experiences. So <clears throat> once we get to that area, where you know, conscious agents with an infinite variety of conscious experiences, now we're treading on the, the turf of spirituality. We're talking about infinite consciousnesses. But we have mathematical precision. We can actually start to prove theorems about these higher level consciousnesses and their relationship to uh, finite consciousnesses. So it's going to be fun to explore. I, I, again, I'm, I'm just excited to explore all this. 
Right. So this idea of infinitely great minds, as you say, gets us into theological territory because, you know, as you said, what is God if not an infinite mind? Um, But the interesting thing about this specific approach of yours is that it leads to us potentially being able to say precise things about what an infinite mind might be like. Uh, So, for example, you've suggested omnipotence and omniscience are not necessarily attributes of an infinite mind, uh, which of course have been traditionally attributed to God, Uh, but also nor would an infinite mind need to be, as you've said, alone in its infinity. So there may be many infinite minds. So Donald, could you perhaps talk a bit about how you arrive at these kinds of conclusions? Right. So when you start combining agents to create agents with more and more conscious experiences, more and more complexity of their dynamics, you can go to infinity in a variety of ways. There's, it's, it's pretty clear that there's not just one infinite conscious agent. There are many, many. There's an infinity of infinite conscious agents that the mathematics allows. Given that, there is a technical question. Is there ever going to be a single greatest conscious agent that in some sense contains all the other conscious agents, some maximal infinite conscious agent. That will be a matter for a theorem and proof in in the mathematics. And I have no guess right now how it's going to to come out. For me, it's a toss of a coin. And the the idea that there's a, a reason for me to think that these conscious agents, the infinite conscious agents, won't know everything. And it's something called Gödel's theorem. It's a complicated theorem, but what it entails is that there's endless mathematical structure. And no matter how much exploration one does of mathematical structure, all the mathematical structure that you ever explore will only be a subset of all the structures that are there. I mentioned before that all conscious experiences are structured. And so there's not a divorce between mathematical structure and conscious experiences. All conscious experiences are structured. And, and conversely, if, if I claim in this theory that consciousness is the fundamental reality, then conversely, mathematical structure is about nothing else but consciousness. Mathematical structure is the structure of potential consciousnesses and, and conscious experiences. And on that hypothesis... What this means is that Gödel's theorem is telling us that there's an infinite variety of structures and therefore of forms of consciousness to be explored. And in principle, this exploration will never stop. And it's impossible, literally impossible, for any agent to ever know it all. And so even these infinite conscious agents will always be in the process of exploring. And if I, if I had to guess... There's a big question. What is it all about? What is consciousness up to? What, if we're going to propose a dynamics of consciousness, what is the dynamics about? What's, what are they up to? It would be this. Gödel's theorem says there's an infinite variety of conscious experiences to explore. It's impossible in principle to ever explore it all. No matter how much you explore, there will be always infinite vistas beyond what you've explored. And so that is what consciousness is up to. It's what I I would call the kid in the candy store theory of consciousness. There's an infinite variety of consciousnesses to go out there and enjoy and explore, and that's what the dynamics is about. And the reason the dynamics hasn't stopped, 
and it continues and will continue forever is because Gödel's theorem guarantees that there is complete job security in this in this endeavor. <laughs> That's a fascinating, and it's it almost evokes a kind of teleological nature to reality itself, like as if it's undergoing this seeking process, this infinite yeah. process of self-understanding, and just this idea of the possibility of minds that could exist outside of our realm of perception that our our minds may contribute to as part of our instantiation it's a disorientating almost way of <laughs> thing to think about donald I'd, I'd love to get your views about conscious artificial intelligence because many people who argue that consciousness is fundamental are also deeply skeptical about conscious ai and yeah, you've argued that conscious AI could be possible. So how do you see conscious AI fitting with your views about reality? Right. The standard approach to the question, could AIs be conscious, is a physicalist approach. The idea there is that we're starting with circuits and software, which are by hypothesis unconscious. Um, you know, if I turn off my laptop, I'm not worried that I'm committing murder. I'm, you know, killing a consciousness. I mean, I'm just turning off my laptop. So, so we, we just assume that in the normal case, circuits and software are not conscious. And, but if you get the right kind of complexity, the right kind of dynamical systems going, some kind of, you know, neural network of the right dynamical properties, maybe self-reference and so forth, then somehow the magic of consciousness occurs or the illusion of consciousness occurs. So some of my colleagues who think that consciousness is fundamental will just say, no, you know, AI can't be conscious because you can never take unconscious circuits and turn them into consciousness. But I take a slightly different view, and that is to say, from the point of view in which consciousness is fundamental, and space-time and physical objects are just our user interface, we can completely reformulate the question of AI and consciousness. First, think about this. If you look at your own face in the mirror, um, all you see directly is just you know, skin, hair, and eyes. That's all anybody could ever see. But what you know firsthand that you don't see in the mirror is your whole rich world of conscious experiences, your hopes, your dreams, your aspirations, your love of music, you know, the colors, shapes, and sounds, and smells that you're experiencing, that whole vibrant, rich world of your conscious experiences is absolutely not visible on, in the mirror. Um, and yet you know it's there. So your interface, your space and time interface, has certain portals, like we call them faces and bodies. My face, the face that you experience when you look at me, is your portal into my consciousness. It gives you some insight into the conscious agent behind the face. But of course, it's very fallible. Even someone who you know very, very well, you can look at their face. If they're smiling, you can guess that they're happy. If they're frowning, you can guess that they're feeling sad, but they could be fooling you. You can never know for sure. But nevertheless, that face is a genuine, if fallible and dim, but a genuine portal into their consciousness. And so we have apparently firsthand evidence that our space-time interface can give us real portals into this realm of conscious agents. So then I change the AI consciousness question this way. We know that our interface has portals into the realm of conscious agents. If we understood our interface well enough 
and how it interacts with this realm of conscious agents. Could we develop technology to rejig our interface to open up new portals into the realm of conscious agents? And might that technology look like circuits and software? And I, I see no reason to dismiss that possibility. I think the answer is yes. I think that we will, once we understand this network of conscious agents, have a mathematically precise understanding of it, mathematically precise understanding of how it projects into space and time and gives rise to what we call atoms and particles moving around in space and time and, and eventually circuits and software, we should be able to reverse engineer this whole process and open up new portals. In this version of it, we wouldn't be creating new consciousnesses. We would be using technology to open up new portals into conscious agents that are already there. And that may be a Pandora's box. I mean, my theory doesn't entail that all those conscious agents are going to be nice to us. <laughs> I don't know. And it's also possible that we will develop technologies to create new consciousnesses as well. Um, that's a little bit harder for me to understand at this point. The, the idea that we could open up new portals seems pretty straightforward from this framework. Creating new consciousnesses, I think that there's a possibility, and I'm looking forward to you know, exploring that with the mathematics. At some point, you become a student of the math. You write down the mathematical theory of you know, like conscious agents, and the theory is much, much smarter than the person who writes it down. You, you now start exploring the mathematic and you, mathematics, and you become a student. Yeah, I really like the way you, you put that. Um, I don't know quite how to put this in your terms exactly, but I think, yeah, even though consciousness is probably fundamental for me as well i don't see that that necessarily rules out that we could construct something that taps into this deeper consciousness and if we get the physical yeah. side of it right presumably the mental aspect would also have to be present as well so a truly conscious ai wouldn't be strictly creating consciousness as you say it would be tapping into or as you say creating a portal into this deeper aspect of reality and in perhaps the same way that our our brains do um so i think your idea of of conscious realism is similar to other views where where consciousness is fundamental there is a kind of spiritual significance to that or if not spiritual exactly but transformative in terms of how we see ourselves in reality in the universe, you know, because if conscious agents are the whole of reality, as you said, then reality is like us. We can see ourselves as much more at home in that kind of a universe than we can in the standard materialist view. We're not significant as humans, but we are central as conscious beings to the core unfolding of reality. That's right. It does lead to a different view of who we are and our place in, in the universe. I mean, in the physicalist framework, your consciousness is created by, say, your brain activity or your embodied brain activity and its interaction with the environment. In either case, when your body dies, physicalism entails that your consciousness ceases to exist. And, and some physicalists some of my good friends, brilliant friends who are physicalists, will argue that that gives meaning to life because the very brevity of life means that it's precious and, and we should take it very serious. And so that gives, in some sense, a meaning to life. And, and that's fine. 
But the conscious agent's approach is very, very different. It, it says, the analogy to death is more like this. Suppose that you go with some friends to a virtual reality arcade to play, say, virtual volleyball. You all put on headsets and bodysuits, and you see yourself immersed in a, a beach volleyball scene, a, a net and sand and trees and so forth. And you see the avatars of your friends, and you start playing volleyball. And then after a while, one of your friends you know, says, um, excuse me, I'm thirsty, I need to get a drink. And he takes off his headset and bodysuit to get a drink, and his avatar collapses motionless in the sand. In the VR world, it looks like he's dead, but he's not dead. He just stepped out of the interface. And when we recognize that space-time and matter are not the fundamental reality, they're just our headset. They're just our virtual reality. They're just our user interface. It leaves open the possibility that death is not the end of the consciousness, the conscious agent is simply stepping out of this interface. Now, what I don't know is how much of what we call ourself, our memories, our emotions, and so forth, will persist. That is, again, a matter for a mathematical analysis to, to ask, because the self is going to be part of the data structure that we create. It's, it's, it's not what we call ourself is from the point of view of this theory, is not essential to who you are as a conscious agent. It's a story that you tell. It's a story that you weave about yourself. So how much of that story will persist? I don't know. But the idea that consciousness will necessarily cease at death seems to um, not be true in this theory of conscious agents. It seems that conscious, conscious agents can persist beyond what we call death. Whether the self and, and its memories persist I don't know. I, I'm, but the nice thing is that's a technical question that we can try to ask. We don't have to just speculate. Yeah, I, I appreciate that you're open-minded about this subject of, of death, and I think we need to be. It seems to me, though, just looking at this through your perspective, that our life experiences, all of our mental states, are already kind of metabolized by this larger evolutionary process which is exploring all of its possible conscious states kind of how you've looked at what consciousness is doing at large what it's up to and if this larger process of consciousness exploring itself what you've called the kid in the candy store if that is what i really am if that's what my interface portals into I guess I'm I'm not clear what the value would be or or the mechanism would be of immortalizing anything else after I die and I I guess the other thing that I wonder about this is if there is a reason that my consciousness might continue that I can understand in a in a naturalistic way that sort of leads me to wonder about these two agents that we've associated with our left and right hemispheres in our brain like would they continue on as well? Like, what would determine what would be preserved on, on this level? Great questions. And I absolutely agree with you that it's, it's certainly open, given the current state of my understanding of the mathematics, to say that in some sense, may, maybe, you know, what I call my consciousness might not persist. I mean, that's going to be a really interesting technical question to ask. Um, it, one thing that along the line of the split brain patients, when when Michael Gazzaniga um, interviewed some of these and, and tested these split brain patients, he asked them, he asked them, um, is it, does it feel any different now than it did before you had the corpus callosum cut? 
And the, the, many of his patients, there's a video of one of them saying, uh, it feels no different. I, uh, it feels just the same as it did before. Now, that's the left hemisphere talking. It turns out when you talk, it's your left hemisphere that's talking. So the left hemisphere was saying, it feels to me no different than it did before my corpus callosum was cut. And that's stunning because um, the left hemisphere was cut off from 43 billion neurons of the cerebral cortex of the right hemisphere. And for it to say nothing to see here is a, a stunning claim. And uh, you know, it turns out the left hemisphere is known to be a confabulator. So I asked Mike Gazaniga, what, did he ever ask the right hemisphere? The same question, because the right hemisphere tends not to be a confabulator. And you know, in, in, in his recent book, he, you know, he pointed me to his book. In his book, he does mention that he, he's asked the right hemisphere. And the right hemisphere also says, nothing to see here. It's the, I don't feel any different. That has to be a huge clue. If we take that seriously, that's going to be a huge clue to this whole combination of consciousness. And also the possibility that maybe consciousnesses that have been formed by combination could be dissolved. Some of my colleagues who are working with me, you know, it's not just me, it's a team of Chetan Prakash, Manish Singh, uh, Chris Fields, um, Federico Fajin, Mauro Dariano, Robert Prentner, Rashid Atmai, Shauna Dobson, and others are working on this. And we haven't worked out the mathematics on this. And some of the, my colleagues think that, no, once you create a conscious agent, there's a sense in which it, it never ceases. Since I don't have the mathematics giving a definitive answer yet, I'm, so I agree with you. We have to leave open the possibility that you know something that's very important to us may disappear at death. But physicalism demands that it disappears Conscious agent theory leaves it open, and I can't wait to find out what it, what it actually says. <laughs> <laughs> well, Donald, it's been such a pleasure to, to hear you talk about your ideas. I know that I'll continue to follow your work with great interest. Uh, before we finish, where should people go to find out more about your research and your ideas? Well, I've written a book recently called The Case Against Reality, and it's published by uh, Penguin in the UK and Norton in the U.S. And so that's a good introduction to the ideas about we're not seeing the truth, it's just an interface. And the last chapter gives some hints about this idea of conscious agents. I do have a mathematical paper. If, for those who are interested in the mathematics, if you just Google uh, Donald Hoffman, and the name of the paper is Objects of Consciousness. So Objects of Consciousness uh, is online, it's free, and you can read the mathematics for yourself. Certainly, I can recommend your book, The Case Against Reality. It's a very interesting book. And even if your your theory is wrong, you're very humble about this possibility that you could be wrong. But it's even if it's wrong, it's nonetheless very important as a contribution to this area of thinking about consciousness and how it fits in into reality. And you know, I have to say as well, I've read your book several times now, especially now in preparation of this interview. And Every time I read it, I, I become more convinced that you're really onto something. So I do recommend people listening to check it out. And of course, there'll be a link to that in the description of this episode. Well, Donald, thanks again. I have so many more things that I'd love to talk with you about. So I hope we can do this again sometime. I would love to. I would be certainly open to do that, Adrian. And it has been a great pleasure to talk with you. Hello, me again. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. If you did, give it a like or a nice rating. And don't forget to subscribe for more episodes. 
If you want to support my work on Waking Cosmos, you can do so at patreon.com slash wakingcosmos, and thank you very much to those of you who are already doing that. Alright, I will see you next time for another episode of Waking Cosmos, exploring the nature of consciousness and its place in the universe. Until then.